Good morning, Merry Christmas. Uh, we begin each teaching of this series with this verse found in Isaiah. Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Uh, this morning in our Peace of Christmas series, we'll look at becoming people of peace in a world of violence. Since the year 3600 BC, uh, the world has only known 292 years of peace. During this period, there have been uh, almost 15,000 wars, both large and small, in which 3.64 billion people have been killed. The value of property destroyed would pay for a golden belt around the world 97 miles wide and 33 feet thick. Uh, we live in a world of violence. And Jesus speaks into this uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 9, it says this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Some of you might be thinking, well, aren't we all God's children? Well, yes, but what Jesus is saying here is something different. He's saying that people who are witnessing these Christians bring peace, uh, they're going to call them children of God. It's like when I'm holding my daughter, Ivy. Here's a picture of my daughter. Uh, and I'm walking through the mall or I'm walking through the grocery store. Uh, people will always stop and strangers just to try and talk to her and stuff because she's the cutest thing they ever did see. And so I, as I'm holding her, people will start talking to her. And it, within that little conversation of this stranger and my one and a half year old, they will undoubtedly say something like, you look just like your dad. Now, I mean, maybe, uh, I think she looks a lot like mom, but uh, this, you look like your dad. The Bible says that peacemakers will be called children of God. It's because they resemble their father. There's a family resemblance to people who are making peace in our world and God. They resemble. There, there's a, a likeness to them. And so peacemakers do help alleviate violence, but not only violence, but all conflict. Uh, this morning, when we talk about becoming peacemakers, it's not just about the front lines of war or war-torn countries or violence in the streets. It's, it's also about uh, being a peacemaker in the midst of conflict, of which we all have. Uh, are you a peacemaker or are you a pot stirrer? Uh, you know the phrase, right? Picture a, a pot of soup. A lot of ingredients have settled down at the bottom, out of sight, until stirred, right? Until you grab those little tongs, and then you stir it up, and then they rise to the surface. And metaphorically, it means that there's a lot of issues, resentments, obligations that drop out of sight when nobody mentions them. But once they're brought to the surface, once the pot is stirred, they arise for everyone to see. One can stir the pot to bring these issues to surface. Sometimes we do it innocently. Other times we do it with ill intent. In your office, are you a peacemaker or a pot stirrer? One of those de-escalates conflict and the other one escalates conflict. In your family, are you a peacemaker or a pot stirrer? Do you enjoy seeing how people respond to other people's success or failure? Do you enjoy seeing that? You might be a pot stirrer. 
Do you often bring up sensitive issues in public to gauge people's responses? And then once you see their response, you go and tell other people about their response? You might be a pot stirrer. You see, becoming people of peace doesn't mean just helping de-escalate violence. It's also about de-escalating conflict. And so what is Jesus' strategy for us to become peacemakers, for they will be called children of God? Love. Love. He says this in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, love your enemy, love your neighbor, and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Once again, a connection between loving your enemies, peacemaking, uh, and becoming a children of God or known as a children of God that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? This is probably the most scandalous thing that Jesus ever said. Love your enemies. Because it evokes this revulsion inside of us. Our enemies are the bad guys. We don't love them. We beat them. We overcome them. We conquer them. We kill them. Uh, For the first century Christians, this sense of unfairness would have arose with a a great picture right before them of who these enemies are, the Romans. Uh, Jesus wasn't teaching them in the midst of this perfect peace and harmony world. Actually, they were oppressed. The Romans occupying Israel during this time is like Al-Qaeda that would have conquered and won and conquered our nation and we'd be living under Al-Qaeda rule. And Jesus says to love your enemies. The Roman Empire ruled the world from England all the way to India. Caesar was the ruler of the world and the inventor of a salad. And (laughs) the Pax Romana means Roman peace. Pax Romana. It was the way of empire, which is peace at the edge of the sword. We take your land, we take your money, we kill your leaders so that there's peace. We kill so that there's peace. And Israel was one of many nations that the Romans conquered. We have records of outrageous taxation, somewhere between 70 and 90% taxation rates. Uh, I know that when we vote at the polls, we think about how it's going to hit our wallet, right? Uh, And if there was a candidate who wanted to tax 70 to 90% of your income, we'd have a problem with that. We see that throughout the Roman Empire. The vast majority of people lived in poverty. There is a record of 30,000 Jewish people crucified just outside of Jerusalem right before the time of Jesus. Here's what happens if you mess with Caesar. Here's what happens if you mess with the ruler of the world. This Pax Romana, Roman peace, peace through the sword. And for obvious reasons, these Jews and the Romans were enemies. And for the Jewish people, this was their thought. We need to fight Rome. We need to go to war against Rome. Uh, We're God's chosen people. God's on our side. God's stronger than Caesar. We should go to war. And that's exactly what happens. And actually, a few decades after Jesus, we think maybe only a few years, some scholars think maybe even a few months after this biography by Matthew was written in 66 AD, the Jewish people decide, to declare war on Rome, and they were crushed. Brutal defeat. Rome massacred tens of thousands of 
Israelites. And their last stand was on a mountain called Masada. Here's a picture of Masada. It still stands. It's this mountain elevated, and, they stood, and the, 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 the last stand of Israel was on top of that mountain, but Rome eventually even conquered this. Then again, 130 years later, 132 AD, Israel goes back to fight against Rome. They're getting sick and tired of these Romans occupying them. And so they follow a guy by the name of Bar Kopa, and he uh, claims to be the new Messiah. He, he claims to be the promised one that will defeat the enemies of God. And they try to fight Rome. And they're, again, vastly defeated wiping Israel off of the geopolitical map until 1948. The true Messiah, Jesus, shows us that you don't overcome hate and violence with hate and violence. You overcome it with love. In this teaching of Jesus, it messes with our minds and it messes with our worldview. Everything we've known and grown up with is about good guys and bad guys. We like the good guys and we don't like the bad guys. As a dad, I found this to be very difficult to communicate with my five-year-old son. Uh, so in the books, in the movies, and the shows, it, it always has the good guys and the bad guys. And he knows we cheer for the good guys, and we want them to win. And I've told him, we want to be like the good guys. The good guys aren't mean. And he said to me, yeah, but it's okay to be mean to the bad guys. And I'm like... Well, son, that's the kingdom of the world, but our loyalties lie in a higher kingdom founded upon Christ, and we're called to love our enemies. And he's like, so it's okay to be mean to bad guys, right? <laughs> when I was a kid, I grew up knowing who the bad guys and the good guys were. Uh, there was, there was He-Man, and there was Skeletor, right? This was, this was my life. I got a photo of these guys, if, in case some of you guys are young. Now. Photo will go now. It will, it will go now. So He-Man and Skeletor were, were guys. Hey, it's not them. Um, I see it on there, but I don't see it on there. That's okay. Um, then there was uh, uh, Optimus Prime and Megatron, right? Uh, good guys, bad guys. Then there was the Goonies and the Fratellis. The Fratellis were the bad guys. Uh, then there were Star Wars. There was Luke, and there was Darth Vader. But in Star Wars, things kind of changed a bit, right? Because the Empire strikes back, we find out that Darth Vader, this evil Sith Lord, is actually the father of Luke Skywalker. Now Darth Vader is a human being. He's somebody's dad. We humanize him. And then we find out in the end of in Return of the Jedi, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, 1984 called. <laughs> but Luke refuses to use violence to kill Darth Vader. Instead, he overcomes him with good. And I thought that's my way in to helping my son Dex understand that we're not always mean to the bad guys, that there's actually good within them. Jesus loved and with his last dying breath on the cross forgives the enemies who crucified him. It's a hard thing to teach. It's an even harder thing to live out. Stories told of a woman who wanted peace in the world and peace in her heart, but she was very frustrated. The world seemed to be falling apart. She would read all the papers and she would just get depressed. And so one day she decides to go shopping into the mall and she picks a store at random and walks 
in and surprised to find behind the counter was Jesus. She knew it was Jesus because of all the images she has seen growing up in Sunday school, all the paintings, the beard, the whole nine yards. So she finally got the nerve to go up to him. She said, excuse me, are you Jesus? And he goes, I am, which I think is a clever answer uh, for Jesus. And she says, well, do you work here? And he says, no, I own the store. And she says, okay, well, what do you sell here? He says, everything. Feel free to walk up and down the aisles, make a list, see what you want, then come back and we'll see what we can come up for you. So she did just that. She walked up and down the aisles and she saw a sign that said, for sale, peace on earth, no more war, no hunger, no poverty, peace in families, no more drug use, harmony, clean water for children, careful use of resources. She wrote down the list furiously. She was so excited. By the time she got back to the counter, she had this long list. She walks up to Jesus and she gives it to him. And he bent down behind the counter, picked out all sorts of things. And then he laid out these packets right on the counter. And she asked, what are these? And he goes, these are seed packets. This is a catalog store. You mean I don't get the finished product? And he said, no, 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 this is a place of dreams. You come and see what, what you like. You, you come and see what it could be like. And I give you the seeds. You plant the seeds. You go home, you nurture them, and you help them grow to the benefit of other people. She said, oh, and then she left the store without buying anything. Peace is something that must be nurtured for it to take root in our lives and in our world. And it takes work, right? All of us have probably had the impulse at one point or another. We saw something on a show and, or we went to the farmer's market and we're like, I could grow my own vegetables and fruit. There's something cool about eating something that I grew out of the own, my own ground in the backyard. And so we buy the seeds, we go in the backyard, we plant them, and at first we're diligent. At first we do a good job of watering and making sure that the soil is, is worked, making sure they get sunlight. But eventually the coolness factor definitely wears off. And we let our garden just go. The weeds got too large, and we just stopped putting in the work necessary to bear fruit. I'll just go buy them at Save Mart. This is an inconvenience. Romans 12, Paul is helping the church to live this out practically in their own context. It's like commentary on this love your enemies thing. Paul's going, okay, well, here's how it plays out in Rome, to the Christians in Rome. He says this in Romans 12, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. That's interesting. I love that. If it's possible, if, if it depends on you at all, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Don't seek revenge. God says, I've got you. Let me deal with that. If it is possible, live at peace with everyone. Verse 20, on the contrary... If your enemy is hungry, if the Romans who oppress you and tax you and kill you are hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will be heaping burning coals on his head. 
Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I love the diversity in our church. Uh, in our church, we have veterans who have served um, in Vietnam and served even more recently in our, our present service members. It's wonderful. In our church, we also have people who have a different conviction, who were conscientious objectors when the draft was happening for Vietnam. And they enlisted in a different kind of service during that war. And in the 60s, if you were a conscientious objector, if you didn't believe in violence, often they would make you serve in very difficult contexts. They would put you in the most difficult and violent mental health facilities. They say, oh, you don't like violence? Well, let's see how you do in this extremely violent mental health facility. Back then, the orderlies would use violence when the patients would act out in extreme ways, when the patients attacked. But these, these Mennonites would, that now became orderlies refused to, to act in violence in return and instead began to love them. They wouldn't fight back. And guess what happened? The positive results on the patients were astounding. These Mennonites actually played a large role in transforming transforming the policies and the practices of mental health facilities to this day because of their stand to not react in violence. I read of one Mennonite pastor telling his church this story. He had given his life to this non-teaching, non-violent teaching of Jesus during the war, and he was an orderly at a mental hospital during the Vietnam War. And speaking about his experience 50 years later, he said this, uh, he tells the story of this amazing transformation of, and this incredibly violent place that became a place of peace and healing. And at the end of his sermon, he said this, I just think that when Jesus said, love your enemies, that means we shouldn't kill them. But I could be wrong. But I could be wrong? This guy has based his entire life and sacrificed countless things because of his conviction? And he says... I could be wrong. He nonchalantly says it, but I could be wrong. Even the way in which he held his convictions was nonviolent. Not only did he hold a nonviolent position in his head, but even the way in which he held his beliefs was nonviolent. And we can see this play out all the time. You, you turn on the radio and it might be a Christian pastor speaking. And if you have no idea of Christianity and you just turn it on and hear it, you'd go, what's he so angry about? Right? The, the yelling, the vehemence in his voice. Uh, I think that the way in which we communicate the good news is actually a part of the good news. We cannot overcome evil with evil. We overcome it with good. This is what the kingdom of God is doing, converting the power over to a power under love. This is actually what defined the church in the first 300 years of its existence. For centuries, the primary way for early Christians to witness, to be a witness for God, was dying well. Something that we probably will never have to deal with. But dying well was a great testament to the early church. 
One of the ways the Roman empires tried to discourage people from becoming Christians and saying that Jesus is Lord, they need to say that Caesar is Lord, was by crucifixion. And in crucifixion we know of because of Jesus, but the Romans used crucifixion long before Jesus and well after Jesus. There, at one point, we have, a, we have records of 30,000 people being crucified. And the more Rome would publicly execute Christians to discourage people from becoming Christians, the more people would become Christians. Because these Christians, as they're being crucified, they're praying for their enemies who are crucifying them. And to be a witness to that, to see that, he goes, there's something there. There's something real there. There's something deeper there. In fact, when Jesus was dying on the cross and praying for the killers, we see one of the first real conversions to Christianity. You have this Roman centurion who is killing Jesus, nailing him to the cross, overseeing it. Roman soldiers are rebuking him, making fun of him. Other criminals on the cross are teasing him. And Jesus is forgiving all of these people with his last dying breath. And the Roman centurion pauses at the moment of Jesus' death and says, surely this man is the son of God. The way in which Jesus died actually testified to the truth and reality of his life, his teachings. The resurrection hadn't even happened yet. He just watched the centur Roman soldier, the enemy, is just watching Jesus die and he has a conversion experience. It's powerful enough to make him believe and to change his ways. Some think, well, this sounds weak. That's fine, but it's no weaker than Jesus. It takes far more strength to love our enemies than hate them. Even in your own lives, right? It's more complicated, it takes longer, it costs more in our personal lives, but it's the way of Jesus, it's the way of peace, it's the way of shalom. It's the answer to our world's problems and the building blocks for God's new world. Martin Luther King Jr. said this, to our most bitter opponents, we say we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. Do to us what you will and we shall continue to love you. Throw us in jail, bomb our homes, threaten our children, send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities and we shall still love you and one day we will not only win our freedom but we will win you in the process and our victory will be a double victory. Wow. Now, for most of us, we're not on the front lines of a civil rights movement. We're just trying to raise our kids. We're not living in a war-torn country advocating for peace. We're just trying not to argue with our wife every day. Uh, but let me say this. Let me say this. You can be a bringer of peace and justice in our world. Here are two resources for you. Uh, Mennonite Central Committee, mcc.org, and also peacemakingteam, ptc.org. These are two great organizations that are a great starting point for training and actually sending people into places of violence and injustice to be peacemakers in Jesus' name. Don't limit yourself and say, well, we're not in a war-torn country, so no. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Let's get real practical here. When I was growing up, I, I have a twin brother, and I have an older sister who's a year and a half older. Uh, and growing up together, talk about violence, right? Uh, we fought, right? We fought. Um, and uh, 
sometimes I was in the middle of all that conflict, and sometimes I was the one trying to, to help alleviate it. And I don't know who came up with it. Maybe it was me. Maybe it was my brother or sister. But when, whenever two of the three were fighting, often the third would do something that we called Peace Boy. And Peace Boy, often played by myself, would insert myself into the situation and go, Peace Boy, Peace Boy, Peace Boy, Peace Boy, and just do this. And it would make them laugh. And it would de-escalate the conflict. So mom and dad would never know. Now, I don't know if when I was Peace Boy, if I was just trying to avoid just my parents' wrath, maybe. Or if I was actually trying to bring wholeness and shalom amongst my siblings. I'm not sure, but regardless, when we said Peace Boy, Peace Boy, and we got in between, it worked. I want to show you a video of a real-life Peace Boy. Maybe you've seen it online. Go ahead, play that clip. But in New York City, we have Snack Man. That's right, Snack Man to the rescue. Man breaks up subway fight by fearlessly eating potato chips. A man and a woman were fighting on the subway. She said he'd been following her. Enter Snack Man. Had his hand up, inserted himself, continues to eat his chips. Security expert Steve Cardian was impressed and New Yorkers were smitten. But Snack Man was so cool, one fan posted, that guy for president, his potato chip plan will bring peace to the Middle East. Someone posted, saving the world, one snack at a time. Sonder, uh, also known as Snack Man, um, he joins me today. Charles, thanks for being here. Appreciate yeah, thank you. It. So, now, I watch this video a lot, and it's amazing because these two people are basically fighting on the subway, and you just kind of nonchalantly walk and stand in between them. You don't say anything. Why'd you do it that way? Yeah, I mean, it looked like they were a couple that, that maybe didn't really want to hurt each other or hurt other people on the, on the subway, and uh, as soon as I saw the guy kick the girl in the stomach, I, I thought also. I should just step but in. But it's interesting because you did it in a way that didn't escalate the situation. You know, you didn't get aggressive with either of them. What were you munching on? I mean, I had a stack of Pringles on top of uh, some gummy bears also. Okay. Um, Pringles is actually giving you a year's supply of, of Pringles. That's great. So, uh, thank you very much. That's amazing. If he would have went in going, hey, knock it off, and stayed at the same level as the conflict he probably would have escalated it. But he just inserts himself like a peace boy and just keeps eating his Pringles and gummy bears. We, need, we must be peacemakers and not pot stirrers. De-escalating the conflicts in our lives. De-escalating the conflicts in our office. We're called to be a peacemakers in our world and we're called to be peacemakers on social media. Is that too convicting? Because there's conflict there, right? You could stir that pot, or you could be called children of God and be a peacemaker. I'll close with this story. Tell me the weight of a snowflake 
a mouse asked a wild dove. Nothing more than nothing was the answer. In that case, I must tell you a marvelous story, said the mouse. I sat on the branch of a fir close to its trunk. When it began to snow, not heavily, not in a raging blizzard, no, just like a dream, without a sound and without any violence. Since I did not have anything better to do, I counted the snowflakes settling on the twigs and needles of my branch. Their number was exactly 3,741,952. When the 3,741,953rd dropped onto the branch, nothing more than nothing, as you say, the branch broke off. Having said that, the mouse went away. And the wild dove, since Noah's time has been an authority on the matter, thought about the story for a while and finally said to herself, perhaps there is only one person's voice lacking for peace to come to the world. Is that yours? We, our loyalties lie to a higher kingdom. Are you a peacemaker in your home? Are you a peacemaker in your world? Father God, we thank you that in the armor of God, we're called to have the feet of peace so that everywhere we go, we bring about your wholeness, your reign, your rule, your shalom. So we pray that, God, that wherever we go, we would be peacemakers. De-escalating drama, and de-escalating the own conflict in our own lives. So God, let Christmas be a season of peace. God, we think of Christmas Eve and Christmas morning. We think of all the family that we like and we don't like that will all be gathered at a table. May we be peacemakers there. Spirit of the living God, we see the dove as a symbol of peace in our world. We also see the dove as a symbol of your Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, guide us into the ways of peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we sing and declare the reckless love of the Lord?
don't deserve it Still you gave yourself away And oh, the overwhelming, never-ending Reckless love of God I was your foe, still your love fought for me. You have been so, so good to me. When I felt no worth, you paid it all for me. You have been so, so kind to me.